And what are some of the biggest mistakes that product founders are making in the early stages when they come to you? What, what are some of the most common things that you're seeing that they're not quite getting right? Oh man, how much time do we have? <laughs> One of the biggest things is folks will kind of be in their own head and think they have an idea of what needs to be built and they go build that. And that's great. You need to have a perspective. You need to have a hypothesis of the problem in the market. But we see so many times that folks are not spending the time to talk to customers up front to validate their hypothesis. So what ends up doing they, you know, they build their solution, they're not getting traction, and then they're, you know, it's kind of like hurry up mode. Let's we gotta talk to people now. You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I'm with Matt Page. Matt is the VP of Marketing and Strategy at Hatchworks. Hatchworks designs and builds software solutions that customers and businesses love through their integrated U.S. and nearshore agile teams. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Paris? Thanks for having me today. Excited to chat it up with you. Me too. You, you have one of the leaner bios from most of our guests. So tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Leaner bio. I wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's uh, a good thing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Less is more, right? Yes. Uh, maybe start with my journey a bit. I've kind of gone through, started in analytics, got into the product side of things, product marketing, actually spent some time building products on the product management side. And then got into strategy and now more on the marketing side. So I've hit a lot of different things in my journey. And I've been with Hatchworks early on in our kind of infancy back in 20, 2017. Uh, but like I said, we design and build digital products for our customers through our nearshore teams. Big thing there that's kind of been the shift ever since COVID things went remote. Our business there has kind of exploded, right? The the, yeah. the fact you don't have to be in person, and you can appreciate this, you know, being where you are, it's just not a necessary thing anymore. It's like being aligned by time zone, being able to work with your clients. So that's that's really blown up. On the you know the personal side, I love to talk about feedback loops. You know, we build products for our customers. That's one of the biggest things is making sure you're building the right thing. We've seen so many customers come in, build too many things, first of all, try to make an MVP that's too bloated and it doesn't end well, right? So it's very important to talk to customers yeah. and that's, that's the part I'm passionate about personally. Yeah. And what are some of the biggest mistakes that product founders are making in the early stages when they come to you? What, what are some of the most common things that you're seeing that they're not quite getting right? Oh man, how much time do we have? <laughs> One of the biggest things is folks will kind of be in their own head and think they have an idea of what needs to be built and they go build that. And that's great. You need to have a perspective. You need to have a hypothesis of the problem in the market. But we see so many times that folks are not spending the time to talk to customers up front to validate their hypothesis. So what ends up doing, they, you know, they'll build their solution, they're not getting traction, and then they're, you know, it's kind of like hurry up mode. Let's we gotta talk to people now. Well, do that mm -hmm. up front. You know, build that audience up front before you actually build your product is critical. A lot of times we see folks build too much, 
right? And the word MVP is thrown around so much. The way I like to think about it is think of a thin slice of end-to-end -end functionality that you can build that's going to serve a very specific pain point. You know, a lot of folks want to build too many things up front. Just focus on one singular thing, build that, get that, that in market, start to validate that. That's another critical piece. And, and the feedback piece is ongoing. That's the other piece, right? So it needs to be kind of ingrained in your process. We like to call it continuous discovery. So it's, it's just got to be a continuous part, talking with customers, stakeholders, all, all parts of the business. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed a lot is SaaS software and digital product founders are initially inspired by scratching their own itch. Oh, yeah. And they, they have experienced the problem themselves personally, and they feel that other people have that problem. Maybe they haven't fully validated that assumption, but they're passionate enough about solving a problem that has affected them, that they're ready to go out and build a product that does it. First of all, do you agree that this is the case? And if so, how can those founders take that initial step to validate that enough other people have that same problem and that it's a big enough problem that the size of that pain point is large enough that it's worth commercializing and building a product? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And and that's actually like the ideal state. If you because you're almost a customer of the problem you're wanting to solve. So that's that's actually ideal if you're if you're trying to scratch your own itch. But definitely you want to validate that the uh there's other folks that have this same problem as you do. You know, what other solutions are in the market? I, mean, I like to think of it in the the jobs to be done framework. At the end of the day, that's mm -hmm. you know, what job is so and so trying to complete. When you think of market sizing, initially, I'm, I'm trying to think of who said this, but uh, find a market that's small enough to win, but big enough to matter initially, right? Find a mm -hmm. niche within a market that you can actually go in and win is a big piece of it. But the, the strategy component, I think, is another piece that gets forgotten a lot of the times. April Dunford, I think, has a, an amazing kind of framework in this. If, if people want to go deep into that, like it's one of my favorite. But where do you want to play and how are you going to win in that market? Those are two critical questions you got to be able to answer mm -hmm. and start niche. That's OK. Solve a very specific customer problem. There's a lot of other tools out there that do everything under the sun. Great. You know, their general purpose. That's awesome. We solve a very specific problem for a very specific user. That's what you want to go after. Yeah. So I'm sure lead generation is a KPI that matters to you. How do you build lead pipeline? And what are some of the things that are working for you today at Hatchworks? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're just getting kind of started in our journey of being intentional here. A lot of our stuff, you know, a lot of uh, businesses starting out, they kind of have that founder led model where the founders bringing in all the business. And that's where we're making that shift to where, you know, Hatchworks is bringing in the business. We're creating our own demands. A big piece of it, you know, Chris Walker talked a lot about this, the idea of demand, the demand creation versus demand capture, right? Yeah. Uh, we're making sure we get the demand capture sides set up so people that are ready to buy can easily find us, talk to us. You know, examples of this, there's various kind of listing sites, whether it's G2 or Clutch. We want to make sure we have a good presence on there. It's communicating what we do. Our lead form online is easy to understand. We get an idea of how people find us. That's a good insight for us. So that's where we're digging in now is... How do people come to find us? What are those channels? What are those areas so we can kind of double down? The other area, I think having these type of discussions are important, right? This helps get the name out. Uh, but we're wanting to be more proactive on the demand creation side. Like what is our, mm -hmm. our perspective, putting that out there in the world, you know, in terms of channels, LinkedIn's a big one for us, but starting to put more of our perspective out there. 
So even though it may be a customer that's not necessarily ready to buy, how can we make sure we're in their minds when they progress through those stages of awareness, those stages of you know problem aware to solution aware to, hey, I'm ready to actually buy this thing? Yeah. And in terms of resources and even budget, how much are you mind share and financial share or budget share are you allocating towards the demand capture versus the demand generation? Yeah, it's it's more heavily weighted on the demand capture side. So that's where we're working, planning for 2023. And we got some things were in motion that we're looking to set up to help on the demand uh, mm-hmm. creation side of it. So it's definitely more weighted towards the demand capture side, but we're looking looking to kind of shift that strategy. And we're, we don't have a huge budget on the marketing side, so we have to be, be creative in a lot of ways. We're a small team. You know, we got uh, myself, a marketing manager and a marketing designer who are both awesome. And then kind of a head of design who also, his main focus is our practice, mm-hmm. but he does have some perspective and insights when we're going through different initiatives. Gotcha. And so demand capture, I I assume that there's a lot of people that are looking for various types of keywords. You mentioned G2 and people that are researching in in categories. What category do you all reside in G2? Yeah, we're definitely on the services side. So G2s, we don't have as big of a presence there. You know, they've been more product focused, but they've built out this services side yeah. of their kind of listing service. So it's a, a newer area for us. There's other ones like Clutch, Manifest, good firms that are more service oriented, yeah. uh, but definitely, you know, custom software development kind of in that mm-hmm. category, that space, and then also in the design side. So that's, that's one thing that's unique about us in some ways is we're not just going to design a solution and say, here you go, go build it or find another partner. And we're also not going to say, hey, we can't design this, but we can staff augmentation kind of build it for you. We can do both. And that's, that's how we think about it. It's agile teams, right? Yeah. So we can bring the the designer, the strategist, the architect that sets up your solution. And then we can actually have our delivery pods, agile pods blended between nearshore and onshore that actually help build the solution. Ah, uh, nearshore. Now you definitely got my attention with that one because we're in Bulgaria. I think that we're a nearshore country. What does nearshore mean to you? Which All right, so this will be a good discussion then, because uh, that is right. Nearshore is dependent on where you are located, right? So for firms or companies in the U.S., nearshore is typically Latin America companies like that. And when you think of nearshore, what's the main qualifier? You're in the same time zone, right? So okay. for you, Bulgaria, countries on that hemisphere. If you're aligned by time zone, well, then yes, you're considered near shore, right? So that's the biggest thing. And it's just been this this shift, right? Since everybody went remote, you're no longer required to be in the office anymore, right? Yeah. So you know, we found that people can be you know, just as productive working remote. If not, I think a lot of people have proven more productive. I know we have. And we were doing this model before the pandemic hit and everything, but it's really grown a lot for us. There's a lot of value. There's great talent, as you know, everywhere. Right. Yep. People kind of get myopically focused in like, oh, it's got to be in the U.S. I need people in the U.S. Well, the talent shortage is real. That's one piece of it. But I've met some of the smartest people I know in Costa Rica, in Colombia, in Peru. So we have a presence throughout Latin America, but mm-hmm. it's been a big shift. And, and it's it, the other cool piece of it, not to go on a, a tangent, but Hatch Futures is kind of the other side of our business. But you're bringing opportunity to those communities. Like these are high paying mm-hmm. jobs that can change yeah. the whole trajectory of a family when folks start to get into this. So we're actually working mm-hmm. with folks uh, in the university system, in the education system down there to get people thinking about this career path because it just can change people's lives. So it's kind of cool to see 
see that too. It's like a bit of the Robin Hood mentality, you know, taking oh, yeah. money from the, you know, distributing it into those Latin American communities and mm -hmm. making folks' lives better. Absolutely. And giving people with real talent the opportunity to shine and realize that talent. That's one of the most rewarding aspects for me leading Hop Online in Bulgaria is yeah. to be able to empower talented people and give them opportunity. Yeah. And, I'd be curious and, on like your side with uh, Hop yeah. Online. I was looking at y'all. How do you think about it in terms of demand capture, demand creation? Like I know what you're doing right yeah. now with the podcast has got to be a great kind of piece of that, but sure. I don't know what's your perspective. You're yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. We're leaning much more heavily on the demand creation right now, more than the demand capture. Mm -hmm. We've t tried on the demand capture side with well, with G2. That yeah. didn't work too well for us, although that was a couple of years ago. That was an ABM approach. We didn't feel like we got a, a lot of value from that, although we have a great presence there. We have a lot of reviews and we're actively mm -hmm. always soliciting happy clients for reviews on G2. But now most of our focus we've done also we've done some paid ads on uh, google ads paid search and on linkedin uh, it's very expensive and I, and I think that for us the type of ideal client isn't necessarily going to be either searching through g2 or doing a google search for let's say performance marketing agency although yeah. there is some volume there so now we shifted and as of the last year or so most of our focus is around this podcast and repurposing content off of this podcast trying to build the podcast brand in parallel with the agency brand so that the two yeah. can hopefully feed off of each other. So we're a little more on the demand creation side. And there are challenges there too, to connect all the dots to the actual leads that come in. Okay. But uh, I'm still convinced that we're going after the right overall strategy here. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, in my mind, it comes down to the relationships, right? I think that's the nice thing about what we're doing here. You build the relationship. Like at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, uh, especially in our business and the services side. That's still going to be a big part of it. Like we do customer research, talking to our customers, people that look like our customers. And like, how, do, how what's their buying journey? How do they go through it? Where do they start? 100%, everybody always starts with, I'm going to work with somebody I've worked with before or a referral from somebody I trust and have worked with before. Even people that kind of say, oh, I, I went to Google. If you really get them talking, they kind of backtrack and they're like, well, no, really, I, I, I start there. So it's, yeah. that's, I think, never going to change. And I think it's always more dynamic than I did a Google search, found somebody, and we started working together. They, you know, yeah. people have information at the ready now. And they're going to do their homework, right? So I think yeah, people I think are empowered nowadays. Right. I think people will probably do a Google search. People that are looking for high-end service providers like both of our, our mm. firm, I think that a Google search will be part of their journey, but they won't rely exclusively on that. But if they do a Google search and a recognized brand pops up and they say, oh, there's Matt. I think I've seen Matt Page on, on LinkedIn. I've seen him here and there. Even if it's subconscious and that's the ad they click on, it, it can reinforce th those things. And then how do you really attribute the conversion? Let's yeah. say if there's a conversion or lead capture, do you, you certainly shouldn't give all that to the, to the paid click. Yeah. But there is a halo effect of investing in the brand and trying to get reviews and get happy customers to talk about you, even so that you're more recognizable in the SERPs when people are doing that as part of their research. Now you hit it. It's, that's the piece. It's like something to kind of click in their head. It's like when folks talk to sales, mm -hmm. if they have some idea of like who Hatchworks is before they have a sales conversation, that's a win, right? <laughs> if they're not having to start from scratch, that's a win. So yeah, I, no, I totally agree. There's a lot of supplementary kind of factors at play. Yeah. 
Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. Let's talk about something that I know you're passionate about, the concept of feedback loops. Yep. And you have a really great blog post about the different types of feedback loops and, and why they matter. Can you walk us through that, please? Yeah. So definitely really passionate about feedback loops. The two kind of core ones are balancing and reinforcing. And mm -hmm. best example, reinforcing or kind of incremental feedback loops. Think of that like interest, right? You, you put money in the start mar stop market, you reinvest it, it starts to build up. It has this snowball effect, mm -hmm. right? That's a reinforcing feedback loop. The balancing feedback loop, think of it like your AC. Right. Yeah. When some a temperature goes too high or too low, it puts it back into balance. The reinforcing ones can be good, like exponential mm -hmm. growth, or they can be bad. Right. So that's where you got to have both at play. But the way, you know, when I think about feedback loops, it's kind of like a process to get these ingrained into your business. You know, first is defining and identifying and building your audience. Right. You got to have an audience of people that can provide feedback in some form or fashion, whether it's explicit, they're actually telling you something or you know, inexplicit where it's like hot jar. You're watching their activities. That's a feedback loop. Defining the purpose of the feedback loop. Right. What is it going to do? What objective are you trying to drive from it? And then select the right feedback loop for your scenario, whether that is actual customer interviews, you know, jobs to be done type of approach. There's product feedback loops like actual feedback loops built into your solutions that you can have in play. I think an interesting one, I, I use Grammarly, right? So I get an yeah. email from them, you know, once a month or whatever it is. And they kind of give me these stats about how I'm doing compared to other people. That's a feedback loop for me. And it kind of reminds me and gets me excited about the product. So you can also use these to your advantage for your solution. It doesn't have to just be like, oh, customer research type of thing, right? So there's they're powerful. And then, you know, test your feedback loops before investing a bunch of time and effort into them. Make sure they're the right ones. They're set up right. And then you operationalize them, get them built into your process, get a cadence going. But yeah, so they're, they're powerful things. At the end of the day, it's you want feedback into whatever you're trying to do so you can optimize it just like mm -hmm. with Agile or any other thing. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had to just kill an idea that simply isn't a great idea and had to give some really tough news to a prospect or even a, a current client? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, I think it's been within ideas. So a lot of the times mm -hmm. folks will come with a laundry list of things they want to do. Mm -hmm. The most important job for us is to help them refine that down. Because a lot of times if it's your idea, your baby, you know, it's hard to say, oh, oh yeah. you know, we don't need this feature, whatever it is. So I think the pruning is the biggest thing where we kind of come in and help. And yeah, a lot of the times it's like, you know, especially if we're able to talk to customers, our prospective customers, identifying areas of a solution that just are not needed. They're going to create bloat, you know, having that hard discussion, but you got to back it up with data. So we definitely have done that before. But you think about it too. It's not only bloat in terms of having to build the solution, say added features, right? 
but you got to support mm -hmm. those features. And it can also be confusing for your, your user of what your solution does. So more by no means better. Yeah, I, I, like a, a, an example of a framework we like to use, very simple. Just take a matrix, put value on the X or Y axis, and mm -hmm. how easy or hard is it to build, mm -hmm. right? It's a very easy framework to kind of start discussion. Anything that is easy to build and provides high value, just go do it. Go build it. That's easy, mm -hmm. right? Where people will get trapped a lot of the times is the easy to build and low value. And a lot of people will put these on their roadmap. They'll go build them because they're easy, but they create bloat within your solution. So you got to be really careful of those. And people are typically scared of the high value, hard to build. But a lot of times that's, those are differentiating things. Like those are things that can build a moat around your product. And I think people ignore those too much because they're hard to build. They're scary. And then low value, hard to build, like obviously don't even think about this. How long does it typically take for a SaaS at the pre MVP stage? How long does it typically take them working with you to roll out the MVP from the time that they approach you all to the time that they're going live, even with something in limited beta, but it's an MVP? Yeah. yeah so a lot of times we like to start with a clickable prototype. So no code prototype to mm -hmm. validate, get by and whatever it is. With those, we can get one of those done in four to six weeks, depending on the scope. And that's where we like to work with the customer and get really focused on, you know, what is the core piece of the solution we want to focus on and design out? Actually building it, we have one right now we're looking to start with and have an MVP ready by the end of the year. So a couple months. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's all dependent on the scope though. If it's a very specific type of solution or, or use case we're building out, it doesn't take that long. And that's, that's the thing, you know, we've built so many solutions, all the infrastructure, the foundational stuff, you know, we build most of our things in AWS or Azure. We can get that up and running very quickly. You know, that's, mm -hmm. it's the stuff that if you haven't built a software product before, it takes a lot of time. Just the fact that we've done it so many times, you know, we can get that part out of the way and going quick. We've kind of automated a lot of the foundational stuff, you know, even, even some feature stuff like login account uh, related mm -hmm. things. A lot of that stuff we can get through very quickly too, because it's basic. We've done it before and it's not differentiating. That's the key mm -hmm. thing. Focus on what's differentiating. That's where the fun part is. That's where you should really focus your efforts. Yeah. And so they've got a clickable prototype, let's say in six weeks, what should they do next with that clickable prototype? Is it time for the first feedback loop and who should they put it in the hands of? Yeah, that's the ideal point. You actually want to get that in front of customers. A lot of the times too, you'll, customers will leverage a prototype to get additional buy-in internally as well. There's just something about having something in your hands that's clickable that goes so much further than like a Word doc of requirements. Oh, yeah. So this is what the solution is. You know, so, so that's used a lot. Ideally, yeah, getting it in front of customers, like have them play around with it. Customers are, you know, they can be ruthless. They'll tell you if they'll use it or not, or do they find value in it? You got to be careful of people just telling you what you want to hear though. Uh, you, you will get that a lot of times. So you got to know how to kind of yeah. conduct that interview and talk to a customer, see how they're interacting with it. But yeah, think about yeah. it. The, uh, about the bias, right? If, oh yeah. Uh, I think it's probably tempting to put that initial prototype in the hands of people who you've already been discussing the concept with and maybe have already gotten some positive feedback from, and you're already looking to reinforce that positive feedback. And that could be also dangerous, I, I suppose. Oh, yeah. And so if, how do you go about building an unbiased audience for your clickable prototype? And, and do you all help even with, if, if there's even some marketing or outreach involved with that, do you all help with that stage of the process? Yeah. So the, I think the number one way to work around that is ask for them to pay for it. <laughs> right? oh, so okay. put, put your money where your mouth is. 
because yeah, a lot of times people say, yeah, I'd use that. But then you ask, okay, what, you know, and you can, you can do this informally by asking, would you pay for it? And then they start to think about it a little bit differently, right? Mm -hmm. Or the best option is actually have them pay for the solution. If they're not going to pay for it, that's a good indicator that they may not truly find the value there. And yeah, we, we definitely mm -hmm. help uh, with the customer research side of thing. things we have, you know, within our design practice, that's a discipline we have and we do so we can help facilitate those conversations. And that's, it's a skill, man. We get people that do this. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, you think talking to a customer, oh, ask them some questions, it's easy, but there's a framework, a format to how you approach that. You know, we love the jobs to be done framework, but we want to get them talking, you know, almost in story mode where you can, they'll uncover things that they're not even thinking about when you get a customer talking. Right. And the whole life cycle, how long does it typically take from the, the entire engagement with, your, with an average client? Yeah. I mean, we got engagements that have been going multiple years still ongoing and we we're just mm -hmm. kind of playing that role of engineering team. And it depends on where the team's at. So those earlier stage companies that don't have like an engineering function, mm -hmm. we are like their engineering partner yeah. in larger companies where they do have an engineering and product discipline. We're integrating in with their existing teams. So we're kind of having mm -hmm. our Hatchworks pods, either separate autonomous pods or integrating with their own, you know, agile teams. But on the short end, you have, an engagement where you just do a prototype or just do an MVP, maybe six months. That's not really typical. Our typical engagements last a year, multiple years, because we're continuing to build with our clients and they, they keep us around. So that's that's a good feedback loop right there. Yeah. And what is the future for Hatchworks? Are you all, do you have a vision? You've got your own product now. Do you have a vision to shift more into a product company or would you keep running these two things separate, the service company and the product company? Yes. I mean, services is still the main thing with Hatchworks. Any type of product we go to market with and has legs, we would probably just spin out of the business, mm -hmm. right? But uh, yeah, the services side, building product solutions for our customers, that, that's the key focus. Nearshore is going to continue to be an important focus for us, that delivery model. And we integrate US folks with Nearshore folks. So it's not just like mm -hmm. a lot of times Nearshore companies, it's like staff augmentation, Here's some bodies, you figure out what you want to do. No, we're, we're bringing the team, but we're still bringing that value Nearshore provides. So that's a big part of the strategy. Our design side, building those prototypes is something we're really wanting to emphasize more on. And I'd say the last part of the strategy is our domain expertise. We want to start to get really focused in, just like we preach to our customers, focused in on who are we best serving, whether it's a specific industry or domain. That's the evolution of the strategies, getting hyper-focused on who can we best serve and just talking more about that. Yeah, you mentioned fintech. Are there are there other any particular real verticals that you all feel especially well positioned for that you want to penetrate more deeply? Yeah, fintech's a good one for us just because we're in Atlanta. It's kind of like the fintech yeah. hub right now. There's just so many fintech companies here in a presence. Healthcare has been a big one for us. We've built several healthcare solutions. You know, healthcare is interesting. It'd be difficult to break into that industry. A lot of legacy stuff. Domain expertise is very important, like lives and livelihood is on the line when you're building software in that space. But we've, we've mm -hmm. built several healthcare solutions and then HR tech, the, like the people ready job stack solution I mentioned, mm -hmm. we got a ton of expertise there. So really those are kind of our three core ones. One that we're finding interesting is kind of in that gaming space starting to have some customers there. And if you see where that market's going, it's really interesting. There's a lot of things at play that I think make that an interesting market and you know vertical. Yeah. I might be opening a can of worms here that yeah. could be dangerous, but what do you think about the metaverse? And are you all going to be helping to develop digital products for the metaverse in the near future? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, right? So that's when I say mm -hmm. gaming, that's like metaverse is such a yeah. big part of it. 
I can't really go into the company that we're talking with, but they're building very big solutions for companies that are highly <laughs> engaged with the, the metaverse. So, I mean, you can probably okay. figure out where that, that leads to, but yeah, that's exactly it. Like it's such, so much opportunity there. You know, we're, we're in a distributed world and we definitely know that with our nearshore business, but I think the metaverse is just going to be a big part of things in the future. We, we actually had a, a patch huddles every other week. It's a company, all hands. And we brought in a friendly here in Atlanta, Allie Young. She runs uh, Access Replay, but it's like, think of it like a place you go to do gaming. Like they do events and things like that. But we did this mm -hmm. like awesome talk just about gaming, the metaverse. Uh, we're going to be putting some of it out in the universe, LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff, but really the regular universe so before. <laughs> what do we call the, the verse? Are we, the, are we in the universe now? The regular world? I, I don't know. It's like, are we already in the matrix? Who knows? I don't, I don't know. Just, uh, <laughs> It's yeah. it's really interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched the keynote. Well, I watched the highlight of the keynote, and I'm definitely getting more and more intrigued with the applications of this. My imagination has gotten a lot wider than it, than it used to be on the potential for this oh, world. Yeah. yeah. In the in the last uh, few minutes that we have here, do you mind if I pitch you an idea for a product that we're thinking about and just get your initial gut reaction? Yeah, I love it, man. Let's do it. It's like a right. built-in feedback loop right here. <laughs> sure, yeah. Th thanks in advance. And and sorry to put you on the spot. This is a concept that I'm wondering, is is it even productizable at all? But we've been working on a solution that predicts lifetime value for our companies, for our clients, based on first-party data. So we are, we're doing data science. We're using machine learning on large volumes of clients' first-party data. So this is things like uh, geographic, firmographic, product usage data. It could be enriched data. As much data as we can get our hands on, really. But we want to predict within, say, three to seven days after a new customer is acquired, we want to use a lot of their behavioral signals to predict lifetime value. So we have a, we have built a model for one client and it, and it's working pretty well. And we're bringing that back into Google ads to help Google ads bid value-based bid against that. My hypothesis is that this is a solution for agencies. So we did it to scratch our own itch because we, we wanted to provide this great solution for our client. And now I'm thinking that this could be something, could, could we productize this? But have you ever seen a solution that is highly customizable and requires, let's say, well, a lot, a lot of bespoke service? Could that something like this ever be productized into a digital product that agencies could even su subscribe to in the future? Yeah, I think what you're talking about sounds like a productizable solution. And I think you look at the problem you're talking about solving. Mm -hmm. I think the toughest thing is actually developing that solution because you hear people talk all the time about the importance of lifetime value and how difficult it is to understand that, right? Because I mean, that gets into projecting your business future. Like how much are you spending? Are things, are, are you spending too much from based on the lifetime value you're getting? So I think the value part uh, is super interesting. I think it is productizable. I like how you actually, you know, I'm looking at, like the framework of positioning, you kind of got a target in mind with similar agencies. And what, what's your thought on going that this being a product for agencies versus going direct to a customer that you know may have like a B2B SaaS solution and they want Absolutely. to know LTV? I think that the direct path is also good. That's a really legit go-to-market strategy as well. But the thing that makes me hesitate there is that it requires 
quite a lot of trust to hand over volumes of sensitive first-party data. Mm-hmm. And in this world of very privacy-first world that we're living in now, I think, well, data privacy is a, is a big hurdle. And I think working with agencies that have pre-existing relationships and that have built trust with their clients could be a way to overcome the the, the data privacy. And that's one thing. And the other reason I, I am leaning more towards an agency go-to-market is that this could be positioned as a, as a tool that helps agencies retain their clients by providing them ultimately a unique custom conversion event for Google ads that if it works, the client is uh, in a way really, they're really hooked. I mean, it's not going to be easy for them to switch agencies or bring the work in-house. Now, the going direct is also a legit play. And I think for SaaS companies with recurring revenue or B2C subscription companies also mm-hmm. with recurring revenue, your acquisition cost is very closely tied to your forecasted lifetime value. And investors want to see things like, what is your LTV to CAC ratio? Oh, yeah. And you need to show that right up in order to get funding in a lot of ways, if you can demonstrate that, you can get a much higher valuation and, and have a, a great runway. So going the direct route is also legit, but that it's a whole different go-to-market strategy. The point you mentioned though, and what I've recognized just building products is getting over that hurdle of actually adopting a solution is hard, right? And you mentioned like the trust factor agencies already have. If you get an agency using it, trained up on it, and they have those trusted relations. I actually, I like that go-to-market strategy. That makes a lot of sense, especially starting out because you may have friendlies you can kind of tap in and have them test the solution out. But the other thing I like about it is just how focused it is. And I would stay very focused on just LTV. Like literally, if the solution just spit out an LTV number as a very minimal viable solution, that's valuable. You don't need all the bells and whistles, just highly focused on, you know, you talk about that thin slice end to end. If you can get me LTV for, you know, my customers, what I'm doing, that's valuable in and of itself. Start there and validate that. And then you look at the problem space, like you mentioned, is super valuable too. Like, you know, impacting your valuation, that's huge. Right. Yeah. That determines how much funding you're getting, you know, exit potential, all, all this kind of other stuff. So no, I think it's definitely interesting. But yeah, I think I think that's the key thing. Highly focused. Are there other competitive solutions out there that you see trying to do this? Yes. One that, that just raised a lot of money. I, I won't mention them, but I'm watching closely and that's given me quite a lot of inspiration that this idea has legs. Yeah. And I, I think what makes you different than them is the category small enough to where the pond's big enough. You know, mm-hmm. but I think that's one thing to think about, like why you versus them at the mm-hmm. end of the day, if you're playing in this market, you got these competitors, you've set the arena you want to play in, mm-hmm. right? So how, now how do you win? What makes you different? I think is the other yeah. kind of interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a great answer for that yet. Um, that's that's the hard say one. We, we will be better <laughs> than them. Uh, but I think this is a, in large part, it's a category creation play more than a yeah. existing space. That's the big thing that it's like uh, when customers think about solutions, they think in relative terms, right? Mm-hmm. So they want to compare you to something. It's, it's human nature, right? So like, what are they going to compare you to? They're going to put you in a box. So I think it's good if you can kind of help them put put you in the box that you want to be in, right? So that's yeah. the other thing to think about. So when you're talking about your solution, putting it in comparative terms, you know, who are you competing against can be a... A good thing. And you can even go against like some of these like large solutions that may try to do LTV, but you know, it's kind of general purpose. They don't do it very well. That can actually work to your advantage going up against these giant competitors. Yeah. Matt, thank you for that feedback. That was extremely valuable. And I hope that was interesting and will be for our listeners too. 
Yeah, it was fun. Matt, thank you so much for being with me. It's been a great conversation. Wish you all the best at Hatchworks and I'm looking forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, same. I appreciate it, Paris. Thanks a lot. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.